welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, the local economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Michael Zuckert. Michael is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Notre Dame and clinical professor at Arizona State University. He's written extensively on topics in political philosophy, including natural rights, republicanism, liberalism, and Leo Strauss. For our spring 2023 issue, Michael wrote an essay about slavery in the U.S. Constitution, contributing to a long-running debate about the extent to which the Constitution supported slaveholding. Some have argued that it was clearly an anti-slavery document. Others have denounced it as a covenant with death that enshrines slavery in the young nation. Michael concluded that each of these stances gets something right, but misses something too. The Constitution did afford slavery some protection, but it ultimately didn't give the peculiar institution legitimacy. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, excellent. Yes. Yeah, so, Michael, we wanted to start um, with kind of what we viewed as the organizing principle uh, principle for your essay uh, in our journal. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, there are these two groups of historians that have a different view of slavery in the Constitution. We have the, the Neo-Lincolnians, as you call them, and the Neo-Garrisonians. Are we wondering mm-hmm. if you could just start out by giving a brief explanation of, of these two camps, um, perhaps you know the, t- the two people they, they draw their name from, um, and how they differ about interpreting uh, the role of slavery in the Constitution? Uh, okay. Well, uh, the uh, Neil Lincolnians, I guess, uh, pretty obviously they draw their name from Abraham Lincoln, and um, they take a position rather like Lincoln's that the Constitution uh, did do some, uh, did give some support for slavery, but that the founders, the drafters of the Constitution, were committed to the ending of slavery, as he put it, to the ultimate extinction of slavery, mm-hmm. and that the support the Constitution gave was meant to be temporary and meant to be phased out. He wasn't always clear on how that was to be done, but nonetheless, that was his thought. Mm. Um, on the other hand, there were the Neo-Garrisonians, named for William Lloyd Garrison, who became the, I should say, the voice, the face of uh, a kind of uh, new kind of abolitionism that arose in the 1830s. Uh, he was the editor of the journal The Liberator, which is a very well-known uh, vo- voice for uh, abolitionism. Uh, And he said things, as you quoted, things like, you know, Constitution uh, is a covenant with hell, uh, things of that sort, because of the great support for slavery that he believed that it gave. So those are the, that's the main position that they, that they took in in opposition to each other. Um, They disagreed a little bit about what the motives for the concessions or involvement with slavery that we find in the Constitution was. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, the Neo-Garrisonians thought that the founders were, well, rather, as we hear in some contemporary voices today, uh, uh, pro-slavery or at least very strong racist, uh, Christian triumphalists, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, a series of you know bad motives, I guess we'd say. And on the other hand, Lincoln argued that the concessions that the framers made were um, matters of necessity, really, for the sake of making the Constitution 
that these these were kind of things that needed to be done in order for the constitution to be accepted at that at that time. So roughly, that's where, and very loosely, that's where things were in the debate between these uh, these two factions of historians. You reference an ongoing debate about so-called indirect aids to slavery mm-hmm. in the Constitution. So mm-hmm. what, I guess, is an indirect aid to slavery? What are some examples of that, and, and, and what implications uh, does the presence of, of those kind of indirect aids in, uh, in yeah. the text have? Okay, so, I mean, let, let's, let's start with actually a direct aid so we get a better sense of uh, what, what to contrast the indirect aid with. So a direct aid would be something like um, the Fugitive Slave Clause. So the Fugitive Slave Clause, slave clause says that if a, if a slave escapes into a free state, that will not free that slave as some, some legal interpretation claimed it would. And the Fugitive Slave Clause says, no, it won't. Instead, that escaped slave should be, quote, delivered up to his, uh, to his legal owner. Um, so that's a that, that's an example, clear example of a mm-hmm. direct aid to slavery. An indirect aid would be something like the insurrection clause, where the federal government is given the power to call out some troops to help put down insurrections within the states should those occur. Well, one of the major kinds of insurrections that might occur would be um, uh, an uprising, a slave uprising mm-hmm. of some sort. So that would be an indirect aid because it isn't, doesn't directly target slavery as its uh, uh, as its main um, uh, as its main target, but nonetheless it could be it could be an aid to slavery mm-hmm. if invoked. That would be that would be a good example. Um, and I think you you mentioned in the essay, um, Michael, that uh, you know there's some neo garrisonian historians that find as many as 18 indirect aids mm-hmm. to slavery, whereas the neo Lincolnians tend to say. There's really three direct ones that are really the ones that actually address slavery, and we'll talk about those a bit later in the conversation. But yeah, so th- this is a real point of contention between the, the two camps. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean it is. It is interesting how uh, contentious this issue can be, and that people can't even agree how many parts of the Constitution are relevant to slavery. Mm. Uh, and I mean, there's a you know there's a there, there's a good points there. Are some good points of debate in this question. In my article, I try to deal with it in, in a rather um, blunt way by saying that, well, I, I try to make a distinction uh, that overlaps a bit with the it direct, indirect distinction that we find in the literature. And that distinction is something like this. Those provisions which would have been in the Constitution, whether there was any slavery in the continental United States or not, Okay. versus those provisions which were particularly put in there because of the presence of the institution of slavery. Right. And I would say that that distinction is a little more helpful than the direct or indirect because anything in the Constitution, if it was successful, would presumably or at least arguably um, help whatever institutions existed in the states to thrive. That is, all existing status quo institutions would be uh, furthered would be fostered by a successful constitutional arrangement, mm-hmm. so that we might say indirect aids are kind of indefinite. They'd be, they'd be, they could be any any provision of the Constitution that was contributing to the success of the U.S. So I'm, I, I I think that's a more a more helpful way to look at it 
but it also tells us that the that the huge number of uh, provisions that the neo Garrisonians want to talk about it that, that may not be a helpful way really to uh, to approach the question. In a way, what I wanted to do in my essay was to get us to start thinking about slavery in the Constitution in, in a rather different way, not to sit down and say, oh, well, what, is this, what does the Constitution say about slavery? In some ways, I think that's a misguided approach to the question. Mm. A better way is to take, um, take our bearings from what is really the most dominant facts about slavery in the Constitution, which have much more to do with the absence of provisions for slavery than, than has to do with the, the actual provisions that exist. And what I, what I mean by that is, is this. On the one hand, the Constitution, yes, it contains some um, some provisions that deal with slavery, but strikingly, the word slavery, the word slave, nowhere appears in the original Constitution. Right, I think right, one right. of the striking facts, sometimes surprising to people, is that the first appearance of the word slavery in the Constitution is in the 13th Amendment, outlawing mm. it. Yeah. So that's one indication of something. There was a conscious attempt by the people who wrote the Constitution to avoid using that term because they thought that this was not an appropriate institution to be found in an instrument aiming to provide freedom. Um, so there was some, some attempt to, uh, 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 to express the hope that slavery was going to disappear and we're not going to have a, a token of it remaining in the Constitution. So that's one fact, the absence of the, of the word slavery in the Constitution, the the absence of or the attempted uh, omission of tokens remaining of tokens that would remain of the of that institution, um, and so every time slavery or, or slaves were referred to in the Constitution, there was a, the use of amazing circumlocutions, mm -hmm. persons held to service or labor under the laws of the states, things like that. Well, that refers to the slaves, arguably, but no, nonetheless, we never find that word. The second fact that I think is really important about the Constitution is the absence of any power granted to Congress to deal with slavery in the states. That is, slavery is not an, uh, an institution of the U.S. Constitution. It is institution of the states. And when it is recognized in the Constitution, it's recognized entirely and solely as an instrument of the states. So I would say that's the most dominant fact about slavery in the Constitution, and the places where slavery is mentioned in the Constitution are, in a way, outliers or exceptions or special cases, that, and it's their specialness that one needs to talk about and one needs to explain, rather than taking them, as, uh, taking them for granted as, oh, yeah, here's some support for slavery. That's not actually, uh, I think, the best way or the most um, insightful way to, to see what they're getting at. Mm hmm. So, as you've as you've just said, uh, the Constitution, uh, you think, left uh, slavery or, or accepted slavery, you said, as an institution of the states, but not mm -hmm. as a federal institution. Mm -hmm. um, so it, 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 in light of that, um, how do we look at the three places in the Constitution that the framers did overtly address it? Um, you discussed earlier the fugitive slave clause, 
and how it was a direct aid, right? And there's mm-hmm. also the slave trade clause and the three-fifths clause. Um, so starting with those first two, I guess, if the delegates did want to cabin slavery as a strictly non-federal issue, why mm-hmm. were the fugitive slave clause and slave trade clause included in the Constitution? Yeah, good. Okay, so you know, it, it, as, as much as they attempted, desired, sought, uh, and in a way succeeded in omitting slavery from the Constitution, there were some places where it necessarily, I, uh, I would say, spilled over into the into the purview of the federal government, and therefore some notice of it actually had to be taken. Reluctant notice, I would say. Mm-hmm. So let's take let's start with the slave trade clause. So the federal government, under Article One, Section Eight, where powers of Congress are granted, the federal government is granted the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Now, among the commerce with foreign nations was, unfortunately, the slave trade. That meant, therefore, that the slave trade would be under the jurisdiction of the federal government as a matter of course, just as part of their power to regulate uh, foreign trade. Now, notice that the, the slave trade clause is, in effect, saying for 20 years after the Constitution is adopted, Congress shall not have the right to prohibit the importation of slaves by those states that want to uh, that want to so import. Now, notice that that's that's framed as an exception to a power that is taken for granted that Congress has, and is, I guess, presumed that Congress is going to want to exercise. That is a power to prohibit the slave trade, uh, which indeed happened on. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was president, a slave owner himself, mm-hmm. was president when those 20 years ran out. And uh, he had Congress uh, draft a law that would, um, uh, on, on, um, at, at 12.01 a.m. Uh, on January 1st, would go into effect outlawing the slave trade. Wow. So there, there was a desire, or, or, there, or there was at least a will to go ahead and and exercise that power when it came to it. Um, uh, So here was a case where the presumption was, um, so one, there was a presumption that clearly Congress had a power and that that power included the power to outlaw the slave trade and that it would, there was at least some predictive sense that it would be used in that way. So that's how that slave trade clause uh, amounted to. Um, We might also talk about the, um, the so-called three-fifths clause. So the three-fifths clause also is something which was, in a way, pushed into the federal constitution by a certain provision that was made uh, early on, actually, in thinking about the constitution, that representation in Congress would be granted to states according to their population. And as they were thinking about population, population was a kind of surrogate figure for uh, general considerations of the importance, uh, the wealth, uh, the uh, manpower of the states, uh, and that they, the thought was the states should be represented in proportion to their importance. This was a big break from the way representation had worked in the, under the Articles Confederation, where, if you recall, 
each state had one single vote and all the states, therefore, were equal, which meant that a state like Virginia, which had quite a large population, and a state like Rhode Island, which had a rather small population. Uh, so according to the uh, representation formula used in the Articles of Confederation, very large states, very important states, very powerful states like Virginia, large population, wealthy, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. was represented uh, equally as Rhode Island, a much smaller state, or uh, Connecticut, again, again, smaller states. So the idea was that this was one of the reasons the Articles of Confederation was not very successful, and that the power in the federal government had to be more proportionate to the actual power distribution within the nation as a whole. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so they I, uh, adopted a formula that said representation of the states would be by population. But then the question came up, well, what about the slave population? Should that be counted in the same way as the um, as the free population? And here, the consideration, uh, it, it, in a way, I, I tell the story in my article of the kind of history of the development of the three-fifths clause. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. So it was something like this. So under the Articles of Confederation, go back to the Articles, um, during the war, there was an idea that there would be a t- they would try to tax, extract resources from the states, in this case, in proportion to their wealth. And the original idea was that while they would do a kind of census of uh, not really all the people, but of the wealth of the different states, and then they would be taxed or requisitioned, really, in proportion to the wealth that they had. But it turned out that uh, doing this in the middle of a war was not going to be easy. Uh, And so they decided on a simpler shorthand way to do it, which was to do it according to population. But they were interested not in population per se as a measure of number of people uh, as such, but rather they were interested in population as a sort of surrogate for wealth and power of the state. The general thought was that the slave population, because people – who are not working and keeping the fruit of their labor uh, tend not to work as hard. That was the thought, that that they should count for less when looking at population as a surrogate for overall wealth and power of the state. So some people said one half, some people said uh, uh, three-fourths, so they settled on three-fifths as a kind of compromise Mm. between those two figures, Um, and that's how they settled on the three-fifths formula. When it came to the making of the Constitution itself, they um, thought a little bit about – some of the same issues were involved, really, because the representation was supposed to um, uh, measure or at least stand for the power and wealth of the different states. And so they settled, uh, after some difficulty, on the three-fifths formula in this case as well. So this formula was not actually me- meant to be, as it's often taken to be, kind of – claim about diminished humanity or something of that sort among the slave people, but rather a, a, a measure actually of the wealth production, et cetera, that, that um, different populations mm. under these circumstances would produce. And I think two things are worth keeping in mind uh, in this context. Mm. On the one hand, f- uh, free black people were counted full. That is, as free people, they were counted uh, as full as full people in the tally of of population, right, right. so it's not a racial thing per se. 
And uh, secondly, in the concern for representation, the Southerners are the ones who wanted to count the slaves more, that is, as full, mm. uh, again, as full or at least closer to full. And the Northerners, who were in the process of freeing whatever slaves they actually had, they wanted to count them as even less because they were interested. They were interested not in gi- not in giving the Southerners extra representation for their right. slaves. Uh, so that's the that that's the three fifths clause, and uh, the the actual history of it shows that its uh, its meaning was somewhat different from what it's often taken to be in our right. current descriptions of the matter. So that's I think that's of interest. Yeah, that, that's a really helpful um, walkthrough history of those clauses. And as you said, I think the three-fifths clause, I think you're right, there's a lot of nonsensical commentary about it, but I think you laid out very clearly kind of where that idea came from. And it was from an uh, actual compromise, you know, in the articles. Um, so yeah. it's very interesting. Um, yeah, and so just to, to ask another question here. So now that yeah. you've walked us through those, those clauses in the Constitution that do kind of directly reference slavery, um, you kind of make this conclusion that, well, the Constitution did accommodate slavery legally, uh, although leaving it to the states, um, it wasn't exactly neutral towards slavery and that, you know, ultimately it undermined its legitimacy. And so you use this phrase that um, under the Constitution, slavery was legal but not legitimate. We were wondering if you could kind of expound a little bit on that and that phrase and what you mean by that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that, I, I was looking for a way that, I mean, there, there, uh, I'm looking for a way to characterize the presence of slavery in the Constitution. So, I mean, it's clear there is a presence of slavery in the Constitution, but there are two things I, 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 in my article I really wanted to bring out about it. First, it was, it was present in the Constitution, but as an institution of the states. That is, mm-hmm. we need to keep in mind this was a federal constitution that is a system with federalism, and that federalism that the that existence of slavery was part of the federalist character of the system. That is to say, it was part of the states. We had a union of different states, which had somewhat different ways of life and somewhat different mm-hmm. sets of institutions within them. And that slavery was was a, a result of that fact w- within the Constitution. So it 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 isn't a feature of this of the Constitution per se. It's a feature of the federal character of the Constitution. So that, that was one. Then I wanted to say, but it isn't treated in the Constitution exactly as an equal partner uh, with all the other things that are that are in the different states. The, the failure to use the word slave in the Constitution is something that to be embarrassed about, something to be ashamed of. You know, I mean, if it was uh, if it was something they had no reservations about or were positive about, uh, they they wouldn't have talked around these long, long. Uh, circumlocutions that they used uh, so many times in the Constitution. What what I was trying to suggest is that slavery was taken was taken as a legality within the states, but it was not taken as a legitimate institution for the Constitution as a whole. Um, and so, legal but not legitimate. And uh, here I have in mind the way in which. The Declaration of Independence, or the general principles that the Declaration expressed, all men are created equal, they are endowed with rights, and so on and so on. The slavery was understood by the people who wrote the Constitution to be in tension with intention. Maybe that's a, weak, a very weak way to put it, contrary to those to the principles 
of legitimacy of the system. So while it had legality, it didn't have legitimacy. And um, I want to suggest in the course of the article that the subsequent history of the U.S. was a history of a kind of tension in which this disparity between legality and legitimacy was attempted to be worked out in one way or another uh, Mm -hmm. as that history unfolded, the end result of which, of course, was the Civil War. Well, maybe not. that's not the end result. Maybe that was the midpoint result Mm -hmm. because this issue of legality and legitimacy is still being worked out in a way in, uh, in, in American history today. Yes. Uh, speaking of which, you know, so this kind of divided treatment of slavery, uh, you say resulted in an incomplete constitution that ultimately, as you just indicated, required this, uh, quote, application of the legitimacy principles expressed in the Declaration of Independence to the states. Yeah. So yes, exactly. This, yeah. Yes, and 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 this question of how we should view the framers and their approach to slavery remains a very live debate uh, amid the 1619 Project and all the kind of reinterpretations of the founding era and uh, de- polarized debates over uh, their legacy and the Constitution's legacy. Um, and, uh, I, I think in light of that and also in light of, uh, kind of declining knowledge of history and civics among U.S. students that have been, that's been, um, uh, demonstrated by, 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 uh, recent data as, as, as summer approaches and, you know, as, as we'll get, uh, to the 4th of July, um, how should we answer this broader question about the, the framers? Are, 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 are the founders um, and, and the men who, who put together our constitutional order heroes who laid down these legitimacy principles that would one day lead to the abolition of slavery? Or primarily are they, you know, cowards who failed to apply those principles in the beginning? Well, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm in danger of uh, irritating everybody on both sides of the issue. I'm going to say they were both. I mean, I think they, they, they did heroic things. Mm. And for those heroic things, they should be honored. But they, they did some cowardly things. They, mm. I mean, they, at the very least, we have to say they punted on this question. They mm. kicked the can down the road. I mean, they didn't really, they didn't, they didn't want to keep this institution. Or many of them, the leading ones, I'd say, certainly didn't want to. Uh, keep this institution as an indefinite institution in America, but they didn't have a good plan what to do about it. And they, I would say they put other issues first. Mm. Let's make this, this new kind of Republic. Let's, uh, let's make this new kind of union. These are our primary priorities. And if the slavery issue is going to have to be put on the back burner, we'll accept that fact. That isn't necessarily the right decision, but that's the decision that they made. Mm. Yeah, um, and sort of dictated by the the circumstances of the time. I think you you put it at the very end of your essay that it was what it had to be. Uh, that is the Constitution. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what it, it was what it had to be, given uh, the situation, the history that they inherited. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like we've inherited history from them, but they inherited the history from the people who preceded them, mm-hmm. and 
everybody's constrained in their own actions by the history that they've that they've inherited, and that was definitely true in, in their case as well. So yes, I, I I guess I would stand by that. They it 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 was what it had to be. Well, Michael, that, that was a fascinating conversation. I think you gave us a very kind of moderate and balanced way to give you this question of slavery and the Constitution. So thanks so much for uh, joining us. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, if you'd like to read Michael's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.